with y'all today. Uh, just FYI, I uh, would appreciate your prayers in particular as tomorrow is the first day of classes of the spring semester at NC State University. And so we are starting back in earnest in serving the students at NC State. So definitely would love your prayers as I seek to help bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ onto campus. But as we're gathering today, we're going to be continuing to look at the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are now going to be in chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 6. So I'd invite you to, or 1 through 5, I'd invite you to, no, 6, invite you to turn there. Um, and as you're turning there, one of the things that you may not realize, or you may if you're um, somewhat familiar with uh, college students, one of the biggest challenges that I have to deal with in apologetics in helping people to understand the reasonableness of Christian faith is the problem of the church. A lot of times I find students who grew up in the church and because of their experiences in the church have walked away from Christianity. You know, I myself uh, have had four ministers that have led the churches that I have been a member of, and of those four, three have fallen in their ministry. And one, the first one, was something that, that cut me to the core, so that after seeing his fall from ministry, I myself walked away from worship for a season. But thankfully, God helped me to look past that man and to see again the glory of the gospel. But this is something that I deal with regularly with students at NC State and students at Meredith. Students who were a part of the church and saw in the church some aspect of sin or hypocrisy that caused them to say, there's nothing there in the gospel. There's nothing there in Christianity. Now, as Paul is writing this book of 1 Thessalonians, one of the earliest letters that he's written, he is dealing with that very challenge. And so this isn't a new challenge that we see as we hear stories of deconversion or, or stories of people deconstructing their faith. This isn't a new challenge. This has been a challenge since the beginning of Christianity. And as Paul is writing this book, this letter to the Thessalonians, He's wanting them to understand what would it take to make a ministry be something that, that doesn't lead people to see Christianity as empty, but something that is powerful. What would it take to cause people to see in the church something that causes them to believe that in Christ I find fullness, not emptiness? And so today, as we reflect on this passage, the outline that I want to reflect on and the thing that I hope that you'll walk away with is what it looks like to have a vanity-free ministry. What it looks like to have a vanity-free ministry. But now let's turn our attention to God's Word as I read for us from the book of 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 
for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pause and ask for his help in understanding it. Father, we thank you that you, as a good father, give us the things that we need, even at times when we don't realize that we need it. And even now, as we sit, we may not think that these words apply to us. We may not think that we need to hear them, but I pray that the words that you want us to hear will pierce our heart and change us and make us to be the creatures that you want us to be. Help us in this time to see what is good and beautiful and true in the gospel so that we have confidence in its fullness. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So Paul in this chapter is beginning a section of defending his ministry. Because after Paul was kind of driven out of Thessalonica, uh, other people began to come in and say, you know, that Paul, he wasn't really doing it for you. He wasn't really doing it because Jesus is real. He was doing it like other people do. He was doing it in order to enrich himself. You know, this happened in this culture just as much as it happens still today that people would go around from village to village and use the opportunity to, to gather a brand new crowd and talk to them about some new idea or some new teaching. And then, then people would be captivated by that teaching and they would give them money. And so there are people that would use the opportunity to go into new villages and to teach ideas as a way to enrich themselves. This was a common practice and, and people were saying, you know, that's what Paul is. He's just another huckster. He's just another person trying to enrich himself off of you. And Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to, to hear that and to not challenge it. Not because Paul wanted to defend himself out of a sense of pride, but Paul wanted to defend the gospel. He didn't want them to come to doubt what he knew needed to be the foundation of their faith. Paul didn't want to defend himself, but he wanted to defend the truth of Jesus. And so Paul wants to help them to understand that the reason that he was proclaiming Jesus was not so that he could be served, but that he could serve the Thessalonians. He wanted them to see that he was there to please Christ and not to uh, receive from them something that was pleasing to Paul. And the way that he defends his ministry, I think, helps us to understand how it is that we can have a ministry, how we can have an impact in people's lives, how this church could be a place that doesn't lead people to see that Christianity is empty, but to see it as something that is rich and full of what we need and long for in this life. And so the way that Paul begins to defend his ministry, in other words, defend the proclamation of the gospel, is helpful for us to pause and stop and think about as a way to show us where we can find a foundation in the way that we do ministry. That will lead people to see that there is a fullness that is not empty, but is full of God. 
And so Paul begins as he uh, writes his defense in verse 1, saying, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And that phrase, our coming to you was not in vain, is actually a lidotease. A lidotease is a certain way that you can say something is true with a little bit of irony to it. So an example is saying about someone that they're not the brightest bulb in the box. They're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know, what are you saying there? By saying that they're not sharp, you're saying that, well, they aren't that intelligent. And Paul is kind of using that kind of phrase by saying that it was not in vain to say that actually my ministry to you was incredibly powerful. My ministry to you was incredibly full. It was not in vain. It wasn't empty, but it was the opposite. It was deeply impactful. And this is what we even saw last week as he was speaking about the way that that as he would go to a new town, as he'd go to a new village, he would find that people had already heard about Christianity. Why? Because the changed life of the Thessalonians was so powerful that it carried the gospel forward throughout the region. Paul has just said, other people have seen the impact of the gospel on your life. And that demonstrates to you, the fact that you've been changed demonstrates to you that that what I brought to you in the gospel is not something empty, but it's something that is full because you have seen the way that it has impacted your life. Paul starts and reminds them that, that their changed life is a sign that what he proclaimed is something that isn't empty, but is full. And what did he proclaim? He proclaimed that there's this living and true God that they turned to and began to worship. And the fact that that's what they proclaimed, that's what they heard him proclaim, reminds them that what changed them was not Paul. What changed them was not themselves. What changed them and made their lives different was the living and true God. His ministry could not be in vain if what the power was in the ministry was not Paul, but God. Was not his persuasiveness, but the Spirit was not the way that he was a great speaker, but the beauty of Jesus. And so as Paul is reminding him that his coming was not in vain by pointing them back to their changed lives, he's helping them to remember that the sign of the effectiveness of the gospel isn't in the minister, isn't in the words. The sign of the effectiveness of the gospel is in the work of the Spirit and how it changes people's lives, how it changes people's heart, how the Spirit brings life to the dead people. He brings truth to those who otherwise couldn't see or hear. And Paul wants them to have this focus that the power of the gospel doesn't rest on any one person, but always rests upon God. So that even if for some reason something were to happen to Paul, it wouldn't cause them to think maybe the gospel isn't true. He's wanting them to take their eyes off of him and point it back to Christ and the truth of the gospel that's in him. But Paul continues, he wants them to understand that, that yes, the, the gospel in and of itself is true, but he then wants them to see the nature of how he tries to demonstrate that in his own ministry. And so in verse 3, he says this. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, 
There Paul is saying that when I came to you and brought to you the gospel, appealing to you to believe Christ, I want you to understand that the reason that I was doing it was not to enrich myself. Paul wants them to understand that it didn't come out of a sense of error, that, that he had some crazy idea that, that no one else really believed. It wasn't out of impurity. It wasn't out of a sense of how can I enrich myself. It wasn't out of an attempt to deceive. That attempt to deceive is an interesting phrase because it's, it's actually in Greek the, the phrase for fishing lure. If you've ever gone fishing, you know that, that what you try to do is you try to get something that looks alive and toss it in the water something that looks like maybe a small fish or or something that's like a fly and appeal to that fish so that the fish will think, ah, there's life, let me grab it. And sometimes that's what people do is they, they can use something that sounds true so that they can catch you. I mean, this is what we see even in the recent scandal involving Sam Bankman-Fried, who was using cryptocurrency in the way that, that people could enrich themselves through this new monetary object as a way to ultimately enrich himself. People can sometimes use truth or something that sounds true as a way to enrich themselves. And Paul says, listen, that is not what I was doing. I didn't get into this to be enriched. I didn't do this out of a way that, that I can be filled. I did this because I want you to be filled. And you see here what is important for us to remember, that there is that temptation for us to utilize truth for our own benefit. There is that temptation to be living in the world, living in our lives in a way that, that seeks to draw from others what we need or what we want. You know, even as you think about the future of this church, as you consider calling a new minister or, or whatever it may be, what is it that you should be looking for? What is it that you should be hoping for? What you should be looking for or hoping for is someone who doesn't come here with a desire to take from Fuquay Verena, to take from y'all, but someone who seeks to lay down their life for this church, lays down their life for this city, this area, this region. And what so often causes failures in ministry is people who utilize the truth as a way to get something that they need, who utilize the truth as a way to, to fill their own desires. And you can look at the news and the recent scandals that we see in the church, names like Ravi Zacharias or Bill Hybels or Mark Driscoll. And there you see the way that people utilize the truth of Jesus Christ as a way to ultimately fulfill their own desires. John Calvin says, The faithful servant of God ought to be a man of truth and sincerity, that he may not be suspected of any fraudulent or deceitful pra uh, practice. Content without character can create a catastrophe. Content without character can create a catastrophe. 
And Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to think that that's what he was doing, that he was seeking to, to lure them in with bait so that he could enrich himself, so that he could lure them in so that from them he could get money or from them he could get glory. So Paul wants them to understand that, that the thing that was driving him was not what he could ever get from them, but was always what he could get from God. And so that's why Paul says in verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul there is wanting them to understand what was driving his ministry. Was that in doing this ministry, in proclaiming the gospel, I get to have the honor. I get to have the joy of bringing joy to the Father, of bringing glory to Christ. And that is what fills me up, not your glory, Thessalonians, but His glory. Not whatever I would receive from you, but what I have already received from Him. And this changes the, the nature of one's ministry. Um, some of y'all may be familiar with Chavis Park, uh, which is a, a big park in downtown Raleigh. And you may be familiar with the story behind Chavis Park, which it was named after John Chavis. John Chavis was the, the first, as far as we can tell, the first black man to be educated in the United States in college. And he was, um, he was this remarkable, brilliant man who studied under John Witherspoon at, at Princeton. He went on to, to, at the time, Washington College, and he uh, graduated from there. And then he came down to Raleigh, and he began to be a Presbyterian minister in Raleigh before, unfortunately, because of racism, the state of North Carolina said, you can no longer preach. But instead, he then began to, to become an educator, to still use his knowledge as a way to care for people, even educating some of the very legislatures that said, you can no longer preach the gospel. He's an interesting man. But one of the things that I learned from him as I was reading some of his writings was he was reflecting on a time when he was writing back from one of his preaching engagements, when he could still preach. And, and it really struck me. He says, as I was writing back, I was reflecting through my sermon and wondering and seeking to find if there was any way that I failed to represent the truth of Jesus. And that really cut me to the core. Because when I'm driving home from RUF, usually what I'm thinking of is, did people like my sermon? <laughs> Are they going to come back next week? How well of a job did I do? Was I funny? Was I insightful? And what does that tell me about me as I'm driving back thinking about it? That, that, that sermon, in some sense, was a way I was trying to get from those students. But the beautiful thing that John Chavis was showing is that, that his preaching was to see that people came to understand clearly the truth of Jesus. And so he, when he was leaving, was reflecting on, did I do that? Because what was driving him was not whether or not people were pleased with him, but whether or not he was pleased with that uh, Jesus was pleased with what he said, whether Jesus was pleased with how he represented him. That was convicting to me and caused me to say when I'm preaching and to think when I'm preaching, this is not about the students, this is about Jesus. Am I doing this so that, that people like me or am I doing this because I love Jesus? 
And I find that the, the sermons that I preach that I most enjoy are the sermons that first have convicted my heart. The sermons that first fill me up with Jesus' glory. The sermons that first have ministered to me. And then when I preach out of that, then it helps me not to be caught up in the fears and the worries about whether or not this sermon's going to work. But even my preaching becomes an act of worship. And this is what Paul is wanting them to understand, that, that his going to them, his preaching to them, was not something that he was doing out of any desire to seek glory or any desire to seek money. It wasn't out of greed, but it was always out of gratitude, out of delight that he could proclaim Jesus. And, and it really strikes me in the way that he shows this to us in verse 2. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There what Paul is saying is, listen, when I came to you, you know what it was like. When I came to you, I just came from Philippi, which we talked about several weeks ago, which was a terrible time for Paul. And, and, and they knew that he had come out of this, this context of suffering and shameful treatment. Not something that, that he was benefiting from, not coming in with like this sense of being sent off by this town as here's this great man, we're thankful for Paul, not being sent out with great riches, but being sent out beaten. But why is it that Paul would have boldness to continue to proclaim? Why is it that after such terrible experience at Philippi, Paul would continue to want to proclaim the gospel? Why is it that when he thinks about his suffering? And when he thinks about being shamefully treated, he has boldness in God to declare the gospel in the midst of much conflict. I think the reason why is because when Paul thinks about suffering in his life, when he thinks about being shamefully treated in his life, what he thinks about is not himself, but Christ and the way that Christ suffered for Paul, the way that Christ was shamefully treated for Paul. He remembers the way that in the cross, he sees Jesus embracing suffering so that Paul could have life. He sees in the way that Christ was stripped naked and mocked as a way that the cross of Christ shows most clearly the truth of God's love. And so the way that Paul thinks about his ministry is not through the lens of glory, is not through the lens of the gain that he could get, but is always through the lens of that cross. He even gets to this in another passage where he's defending his ministry to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians he says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Do you see here, that's the heart of Paul's ministry. That's just what he's wanting the Thessalonians to see, that I'm carrying around me in my body the death of Christ, that every time that I suffer, that every time that I'm shamefully treated, it doesn't discourage me. It doesn't cause me to pull back, but it actually gives me strength. It gives me boldness because in it, I see that I am living out the life of Christ. And just as his suffering led to life, just as his shameful treatment leads to our glory, so I know. That when I come to you and I suffer, that God can work so that I know that even when I'm deprived, that I know that I'm not really deprived because God is the one who provides for me. So that as he says, we may be crushed, uh, we may be afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. It's not that it's not painful, but it doesn't deter him. Because Paul knows that what makes his ministry powerful is not him, is not his circumstances, is not what he receives, but is always Christ in him crucified. In another spot in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Paul wants us to understand, as he speaks about his ministry not being in vain, that what makes it not in vain, what makes it not nothing, is that Jesus is something. And so what drives him is not, how can I get from you, from my people, what pleases me, but what drives him is always what he says. Not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. And this is a good reminder to us for our own thoughtfulness about what it looks like to minister and to serve. Is it that our ministry and our serving is to please us or to please others? It's easy to to know what is right to do, to say the right things to people because it's the Christian thing, things like, I'll pray for you. It's easy to to serve with the idea of people are watching me serve. People are going to see me serve. They're going to notice me serving. And from that, to get a sense of, of glory. People think of me as a kind person. People think of me as a nice person. People think of me as a good person. But those kinds of living are empty because they're built around you. But the thing that will make a ministry powerful, the thing that will make a ministry not in vain, is if what people see in you, what people experience in you, is that you carry around in you the death of Christ. That what fills you, what drives you, is not what drives everyone else in this world. What can I grab? What can I grasp? 
What can I gain from others or from this world? But what fills you, what drives you, is what you have already received from God. Which is why Paul goes on to say, for we never came with words of flattery. Why wouldn't he come with words of flattery? Because he had already received from Jesus the very words that he needed most to hear, that, that he is loved, that he is treasured by the Father, that Christ values him as a servant, that Christ values him as a brother. He doesn't need to get the, the approval of the Thessalonians because he received the approval of Christ. And so he says, we didn't come with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Why doesn't he come with greed? Because he's already been enriched with the treasures of Christ. And he knows that, that Christ, as the heir of all things, has given Paul the same treasure. And that he too will be an heir with Jesus. He didn't come to seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostle of Christ. I, he's saying, I had the opportunity, the ability to seek glory for myself, but I didn't. Why? Because I don't want your glory. I want Jesus to get the glory. Why? Because I find him glorious. And so when we minister whether that's bringing the gospel to our neighbor, whether it's caring for the people in our church, we always need to first seek that what is filling us is Jesus. And as we find in him the glory that we want, as we find in him the, the gifts that he gives that, that cause us to not seek to be greedy, as we find from him, the love that all of our hearts long for. When we go to people, we're not going to seek to take, but we're going to seek to give. That's in a part what we do when we gather and worship Sunday after Sunday. It's what we seek to do as we do our own personal worship, is we seek to so fill our hearts with Christ, so fill our life with the death of Christ that we labor out of that fullness that we serve out of that fullness so that all that we do will be full because it isn't coming from us, but it's from him who is all fullness, who is full of love and glory because he is full of the divine. And Paul here shows us that if you want have a ministry that is not in vain, then your ministry must be full of Christ. If you want to have that fullness of Christ, then you must seek to dwell and depend on Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that Christ can fill us and the way that that fullness can lead us to have the opportunity to pour deeply into others and to know that what we're pouring into them will impact them because we are not pouring into them ourselves, but you. Help us to root ourselves in him that others might see him. 
We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.